Well, good morning, everyone. How we doing? Man, you guys were worshiping. I love it. It was good. Man, it was so powerful to just praise God together. Well, hey, I got a question for you guys, that, and this is, this is a pretty important question. So, like, I want you to take it serious, okay? Like, really think about your answer before you give it, all right? You ready? No one's ready. Are you going to give me an honest answer when I ask this? Okay. What color is this dress? Is it, is it black and blue? Or is it yellow and gold? Do you guys remember this? The dress. This was a thing that exploded on social media a couple years ago where, like, I, I didn't even know the background of it. I just saw, like, everybody arguing over what color this dress was. And I'm like, who cares? It's not even that pretty of a dress. Like, why would you argue about, like, what, it, what color it is? And I did a little background research on it, and I guess it was a, a mother in Scotland. Her daughter was getting married, and so she took a picture of this dress because it was the dress she was going to wear to the wedding, and so she sends it to her daughter. And supposedly, within 48 hours of this being posted on Instagram, there was something like 4 million comments on it where people were arguing back and forth what color the dress was. Was it blue and black, or was it white and gold? And of course, I remember whenever I was seeing it, it's it's messing with me. Because almost the whole time, like whenever I'm getting ready for this message, and like I looked up the color, and I made sure to download the like original picture, and it was always white and gold whenever I'd look it up. And I remember there was like one point where I'm like, oh dang, it's black and blue. Like, and then suddenly it's white and gold again. I'm like, I'm looking at it right now, black and blue. But it was funny because I was talking to one of our tech guys back there as we're getting the pictures ready and slides ready. And I said, it's only ever been white and gold for me. And he's like, yeah, it's only ever been black and blue. And I'm like, because I always like, you always wonder a little bit like, okay, like, does, is really everybody seeing the same thing? And there's only like a couple people who see it differently. But it's like, no, like, even in that moment, this was like an hour ago. And already it was like, all right, we already see things different. Like, and it's funny because this is often the way things are in life, is that two people or two groups of people can look at the exact same thing and see something totally different, view it in a totally different way. Which, in case you were wondering, for anybody who wants to feel vindicated by it, it finally did come out that the dress is actually black and blue. It's not white and gold. In fact, there was somebody like created this like uh, picture to show. You can go ahead and put to like show how the color perceptions. I mean, like literally, like neuroscience people have done like peer-reviewed studies on how this argument happened. Like how the human brain perceives colors differently. Like different people perceive colors differently. And so, like they created these things to show how. Anyway super, super interesting, but the thing I feel like I've learned throughout my life is it's hard to change our perceptions once we view something a certain way, right? And unfortunately, just like the viral dress debate, we're living in a time where there is a lot of division and a lot of disunity about everything. We live in a time when political polarization and fake news has made everyone skeptical of everything, And it seems like the expanse between different groups continues to grow and grow more and more every day. And so 
you know, we've been talking about this series we've been doing uh, called Love in the Time of Corona. And where kind of we got some of this idea from is uh, there's this particular passage that I was just, I've been thinking about a lot. I've been kind of camping in Matthew 24, where Jesus is talking about the signs of the end times. And he talks about, you know, there's wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and persecution and large scale deception by false prophets. But there was one particular verse, verse 12, that just kind of struck me in a strange way. And this is the one that I want to focus on where it says this, verse 12. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. That Jesus was saying one of the chief signs of as we begin to move into the end of the age is that the love of most will grow cold. The way that I like the way that the King James translates it because it says because of the increase of lawlessness we're seeing some lawlessness in our days right now it says that the the love of many will wax cold. I just like that imagery there to wax cold. It's a picture of something that was once warm and, and pliable becoming hard and brittle, becoming immovable. So one of the greatest signs of the end of the age is hardened hearts refusing to love. And so we're realizing, man, this is, this is kind of the time that we're in, where we see the love of many people kind of slowly ebbing, ebbing away, and that this is a time that clearly this isn't something that's just going to last for a month or two and then be over, but we've almost, in a sense, entered into a new, a new a shift, a, a new age and so everyone in the world has been affected by this, and we're seeing this across our country. Racial tensions and political tensions and social tensions continue to rise, and it's easy for our love to diminish in this time. And so we wanted to do this series called Love in the Time of Corona to address this growing trend. How do we continue to live and love like Jesus when the love of many of us around us are growing cold? And so last week, Darren started off the series asking the question, what do we love? And he talked about this amazing idea of disordered desire. This is the way sin was often talked about in the early centuries of the church. Disordered desire, meaning we have love for many things in our life. And when that order gets shifted around, things that should not receive as much love get higher on the list. And it begins to be idolatrous. And we can begin to love things rather than people, much less God himself. And so we're, he asked the question, what do we love? And began to answer that. But today I want to shift just a little bit the conversation to answer the question, who do we love? Because we live in a time when it is really easy to place people in categories, right? And oftentimes, even though we may not always use this language, this is often the categories we use, us versus them, right? People who are like me are part of the us category, and people who are not like me are a part of the them category. And there's a really interesting study I read years ago. It was a, it was a sociological study done, I think it might have been back in the 1970s, where they took a group of boys that were all pretty similar to each other, and they just arbitrarily divided them into two groups. So it was not based on any kind of category of any type, just random division into two different groups, and they gave each of the two groups of boys a certain amount of money, and they wanted to see, like, how they spent the money and borrowed and lended the money, and they found, like, this huge correlation that 
people, these boys tended to lend money or give money to people who were in their group like exponentially more than those who were in the other group, even though they were divided into two groups based on absolutely nothing. That there's just this dynamic in the sinful nature of people that how do we treat them not nearly as good as we treat us. We always give preference. We always treat us better than we treat them. And that's tough because this dynamic of us versus them comes up in so many different areas and it affects how we treat people in lots of different ways. Like, for example, like, you know, I believe there, there are really only, you know, really two types of people in the world. This is my us versus them category. There are those who love Star Wars and then there are those who are wrong. It's pretty straightforward. I try not to treat people, you know, in the other category, them, uh, less than I treat the others. But I mean, come on, like, you can't help it. But, you know, that's it, the us versus them dynamic is it's unavoidable in so many ways, often ways we don't even realize that we're doing. And so in the 10th chapter of Luke's gospel, uh, there's this really interesting exchange that Jesus has with a couple religious leaders because, you know, we act like things are so, you know, so terrible and so bad right now. But the truth is, back in the first century, things were just as divided, just as, you know, powder, keg, you know, ready to explode. Back in the first century, it is now. There's just as many political divisions, just as much wars and rumors of wars, just so many things going on back then. And oftentimes, navigating through that was very difficult, especially for Jesus, who was coming not to side with a political group, but to proclaim a kingdom that would claim dominion over all. And so in Luke 10, verse 25, we see this story pick up. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, he referring to Jesus. How do you read it? And then the expert in the law answered, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. Now, this seems like a really, really straightforward question because it was a common thing in the different sects of Judaism, just like we have different denominations who argue and bicker about sometimes meaningless things. There was actually different sects and groups of Judaism in the ancient world as well, that there was divisions even among the Jewish faith. And so oftentimes there was arguments about what are the most important laws. Like they actually, the uh, teachers of the law at the time would rank the 600 and something, I can't remember how many it is, over 600 commandments in the Bible. They would actually rank them according to the most important. And the different sects regarded different commands more important than the others. And this would cause contention between them. So someone was wanting to know where Jesus stood. You know, are you standing with the Pharisees or maybe the Sadducees that, you know, the Levites and the priests, the more, you know, priestly class, they would rate ceremonial cleanliness a little bit higher because it was part of temple life and they viewed the sacrificial system as very important, whereas other, other ones may not put as much of an emphasis on this. And so, of course, Jesus, as he always does, and I love this about him, when asked a question, he responds with a question and he says, well, what do you think is the most important and, of course, he gives probably what would have been considered the safest answer then, which was quoting what's a prayer called the Shema. Now, this was a prayer that the Jews prayed 
every day, sometimes multiple times a day. It's based out of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our, the Lord our God, the Lord, you know, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, you know, so and so and so. Like, this was a prayer they prayed, and it was kind of the central kind of cornerstone of Jewish spirituality. You love God with everything you have. But then he's even, like, wanting to, like, show how spiritual he is, because then he quotes from Leviticus 19.18, which says to love your neighbor is yourself. Now, it seems like a straightforward good answer, but as we see in verse 29, there's more behind this than what seems to be going on. Verse 29, but he, referring to the expert in the law, he wanted to justify himself. Now, I want to pause there for a moment. Now, if you were here for the previous series that we did called The Truth About Us, we talked about the nature of self-righteousness, that oftentimes if we are not able to meet true righteousness, which is the standard God sets, what we do is we create a standard called self-righteousness, where it's my own version of God's standard that I know that I can meet, and then I tend to look down and judge everyone who doesn't think or act or behave exactly the way I think they should. And that's called self-righteousness, and we're all guilty of it at different times, and so have to oftentimes surrender that stuff to Jesus and admit how bad we actually are, even though we don't want to admit it. But so right here, he's showing his motivation. It says he wants to justify himself, meaning like, all right, I want to make sure I come out on the right end of this. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, that seems like a good question. Who's my neighbor? Like, if I'm supposed to love my neighbor, it'd be good to know who my neighbor is so that I, you know, know exactly kind of where that lands. But see, what he's actually doing here, the fact that Luke even names that he's trying to justify himself, is he is looking for a loophole to the requirement. He's asking, where's the line in the sand? Who is my neighbor and who is not my neighbor? Because then I know who I'm supposed to love and who I'm not supposed to love. Because technically, you know, if I ask this question, who's my neighbor and who's not my neighbor, really what I'm asking is, who's one of us and who's one of them? Because how do I treat us? A whole lot better than I treat them. And so he's wanting to know, what are the conditions of love? Where do the lines lay? What are the obligations of loving my neighbor? He wanted to know where the boundaries of love fell. At what point can I stop loving? And see, in our own sinfulness, this is a question we, we may never ask it. We may not even consciously think it. But I think subconsciously, in a lot of ways, we always look for the loopholes, don't we? We have things set up, we know how they're supposed to be, but we look for those loopholes of like, how can I just like skirt around this thing so I don't really have to do what is required of me? Um, because it might mean me humbling myself, or it might mean me moving towards someone that I'm just, man, I'm not comfortable with that person, and it's hard to move toward them. They're difficult to love, because it's harder to love them, those in the out category, than it is to love one of us those that we consider to be in the in category. So this is the question he's asking. Where can love stop? Where do the requirements end? How far must love go? So Jesus, he gives his reply in verse 26. 
In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I, and when I return, I will uh, reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Now, uh, this story would have been just absolutely startling and disturbing to Jesus's listeners. Now, it's not to us. Some of that is because we've been reading this story and retelling it for 2,000 years now, and it's ingrained into our culture to where, what do you call someone when they do like a, an anonymous good deed for someone else? What do we call them? We call them a good Samaritan. There's organizations, Samaritan's Purse, that they're dedicated to caring for the hurting and caring for the poor and that type of thing. And so it's very much ingrained in our situation to, you know, a Samaritan is this good person. And we almost, it's almost synonymous with just a, a, a good person who cares for someone who's kind of down on their luck. But according to the Jews, especially at that time, this would have been a scandalous story to tell. Because there was a, a bit of a... Racial, uh, religious, uh, ethnic, uh, like even like some political division here. Because see, uh, there's a, a, a region right between Galilee and Judea called Samaria. And it was a group of people who lived there that, if you go back to your Old Testament history, whenever the northern kingdom of Israel had been exiled uh, by the Assyrian Empire, there were some Jews who actually remained in the area, and over the course of several hundred years, they began to intermarry with some Gentiles there, which was a big no-no for the Jews. You were only supposed to marry within the faith. You're supposed to stay within the tribes of Israel. But many of them intermarried with other ethnic groups outside of it. And so, like, their own, in a sense, kind of religion developed to where like the capital of the Samaria area, the capital of it was called Samaria. And they actually, not a lot of people know this, they had their own temple. Like they didn't believe you were supposed to worship at the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. They worshiped at their, they had their own priestly system. They had their own sacrificial system in Samaria at the Samaritan temple. And so there's all these different divisions, all these different separations. And of course, the Jews considered them, they're compromised. They're not truly a part of the people of God. You know, they've, they've uh, compromised in all different types of ways and caused all different types of problems. And so, you know, just to kind of get an idea, uh, like, because you even see this in the Gospels a little bit, to where, like, when Jesus is traveling either from Galilee to Judea or from Judea to Galilee, because uh, there's one story where it's like they're traveling through Samaria, and it's, like, kind of scandalous for the disciples, because, like, the typical way of living in that time was you actually go around Samaria. Jews would travel into a whole other region just to avoid traveling through Samaria. It would be, uh, to give you maybe a, 
a good example of what that might be like. It's like someone traveling from Missouri to Indiana, and they travel down through Kentucky because they don't want to, you know, I can't imagine why anyone wouldn't want to come to Illinois, because Illinois is so amazing. But no, like they would try, I want to drive down through Kentucky because, man, I don't want to drive through Illinois because you know how those people are. But see, it's, so there's this full force scandal in this story. Immediately, the listeners would have been like, oh, like, where's this story going to go? And to let you maybe capture the scandal of it a little bit more, imagine this story being told in 1930s Germany. And the hero who steps in to save the wounded German man was Jewish. That would have been the scandal. Imagine the American South in the mid-19th century, and the man who saves the wounded plantation farmer was African. If it was told in Illinois today, it would be the Packers fan saving the Bears. No, actually, that's not a good example because Packers fans are just terrible people no matter what. (laughs) I'm sorry, I had football starting today. I'm so excited. But see, in this story... The very beginning of it is already inflamed with division. Jews and Samaritans were separated racially, politically, socially, you know, in all different kinds of ways. If anybody was not your neighbor, it was a Samaritan. So why would Jesus have a Samaritan be the hero of the story? Because he wanted you to pay attention. He wanted you to remember the story for the rest of your life. Because this Samaritan, he, you know, by Jesus telling the story in this way, he's essentially saying these other groups of people, the Levite and the priest, the people who should have known the law, who should have lived in a way that pleased God, weren't. And it actually took someone like not part of the us group, not part of the in crowd that that person did what pleased God and actually found themselves justified before God. It would have just been absolutely scandalous. So basically what Jesus was saying, like, don't just assume because of your background, because of the family you grew up in, because of the region of the world or country or whatever that you grew up in, that you're automatically in the right with God. And notice how Jesus ends the story in verse 36. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? And I love how it says the expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Now notice, he doesn't even say the word Samaritan. Like, that's how much they hated each other. He didn't even want to, like, speak the word on his lips. So he's just like, you can almost like him, like, saying it through gritted teeth, like, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. That's what it means to truly live for God. And so I just want to pause for a minute and take in what has happened in this story. Because Jesus told it in a way that shocked his listeners into not only listening, but into remembering, to paying attention. And what he's saying in this story is, you don't get to decide who your neighbor is. We don't get to determine that. We don't get to draw the lines in a way that is convenient for us. Who is one of us and who is one of them? We don't get to determine that. True love of neighbor means loving everyone always. 
We don't get to decide who's worth it or not, to play favorites, to give special treatment. And that's why in the story, when the man asks, who is my neighbor, Jesus actually doesn't even really, like, this is the interesting thing about this story. Jesus doesn't even really answer the question that the expert in the law was asking, because the expert in the law was asking, who is my neighbor? But the way Jesus told the story, essentially what he was saying to the man is, that's the wrong question. You shouldn't be asking the question, who is my neighbor? You should instead be asking, how do I be a good neighbor? What does it mean for me to be a neighbor? And that means to love everyone, always. Every person on the face of this world is my neighbor and is your neighbor, and we are called to love all of them, always. That is the way of Jesus. That is the way of the kingdom. And I know some of you are like thinking, I'm like, well, hold on a second, Tyler. Like, but what if they don't love you back? Like, what if they treat you poorly? You mean like they did to Jesus? Like Jesus literally loved his enemies. And I don't say this figuratively. I mean this literally. He loved them literally to death. And to live the cruciform life, to live a life that we don't model ourselves after a particular denomination. You shouldn't model yourself after my life or Van's life or any speaker's life. No pope, no religious leader of any kind. You don't model your life off of them. You model your life after Jesus. And he loved everyone always, even to death. That is love of neighbor and anything that hinders, hinders us from loving people like that is contrary to the gospel message. And see, this is why showing partiality, showing preference to anyone for any reason is thoroughly anti-gospel. James writes about this. This is decades. This is the half-brother of Jesus. Decades after Jesus left the earth, in James chapter 2, verse 8, he writes this. If you really keep the royal law, that's referring to that Leviticus passage of love your neighbor as yourself, to keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, preference, partiality to anybody, treating us better than them, you sin and are convicted by the laws, or the law as lawbreakers. When we treat one group of people better than another, when we create us versus them categories, we're breaking the law of love. We're not living out the neighbor love that Jesus has called us to. And so as we go about our lives and place judgment on those who are not like us economically, racially, politically, religiously, we're in danger of breaking the law of love. We're in danger of going the way of the priest and the Levite who passed on because the person half-dead on the road is not like me, wouldn't fall in the us category, and therefore, maybe if they looked a little bit more like me or made the same amount of money or believe, had the same political beliefs, then maybe I would stop. But see, the answer to this is not about proving that my side or your side or our side or their side is right or wrong. It's love of neighbor, loving everyone, always. 
See, it's the good Samaritans of the world saying, man, even though I may have reasons to dislike you, even though I may have reasons to distrust you, I am going to, and I love the way C.S. Lewis defined love because he says that true love, not the sentimental, like, oh, I kind of like this person, true love is to work and to will the good of another. That I'm going to will it, I want it, I want good for this person, but I'm not just going to want it, I'm actually going to work for it as well, even if that person might be considered my enemy. And I'm going to do it whether they know about it or not, whether they reciprocate it or not, because love doesn't have to be recognized or repaid, it just simply is. And so love for your neighbor, it, it doesn't start with a feeling. It starts with actions. And for our actions to change, our hearts need to be changed by Jesus. And this is kind of the thread that is woven through every part, every week of this series, that I have to be willing to examine my own heart before the Lord and ask him, like, God, show me. Show me those areas where maybe I show preference to certain types of people. Like, I remember being in high school and thinking, like, the socially awkward kids, I kind of shy away from them. I want to be around people who are more socially adept, who can maybe as witty as me or can return a joke just the same as me. But it's like I'm unknowingly creating an us versus them mentality of like, because you're not exactly like me or don't behave like me or don't wear the same clothes as me or don't smell the same as me, then you're not worth as much as me. And it's sin. There's no other way to talk about it. When I show preference to one group or one person over another, I'm sinning. And so I need the Spirit to convict me of those ways. Like, God, show me where I create those us versus them categories, where I treat people with preference where maybe I shouldn't, where I show favoritism, partiality, how I shy away from those who are different than me. Like, convict me of that sin because that's what it is. When I treat certain people better than others for whatever reason, it's sin. Because at the end of the day, transformed actions come from a transformed heart. This isn't something we, like, white-knuckle our way through it. Like, there has to be a genuine heart change for us to love everyone always. And it's amazing how our actions can change once our motivations begin to change as well. Like, something I've noticed this, you know— you enter into new seasons of life with parenting and with your family and things like that. Something we're doing now that the girls are in kindergarten. Like, we notice, like, they offer to help with stuff sometimes. But we realize, like, okay, if they can offer to help sometimes, they need to have some regular tasks that they do on a regular basis. Like, they need to kind of start carrying their own weight around here. And so we start having, and I mean, some of it's very simple things, like carry your plate to the sink or to the dishwasher after dinner or something like that like and it's funny because sometimes they're willing to do it if they know like ah yeah we're going to the park after and like yeah mom let me help and but then other times and i've seen this happen where they're like oh it's so heavy the plate is so heavy and oh, my legs hurt and i'm just like seriously it's like it's amazing how your motivations change like your actions change when your heart condition begins to change too and of course, and they're like, why can't mommy do it? And one time Lindsay was actually like, do you think I actually like cleaning up for you? And they're like, 
well, yeah, you're an adult. And I'm like, well, no wonder you guys don't want to grow up. Like, you think that, like, when you become an adult, you think cleaning is fun. And so, like, we let them know in no uncertain terms, we do not like cleaning up. You know, you're never going to like cleaning up. And so this is part of being, like, growing up and being responsible and things like that. And so and it's still just, oh, so heavy. Just like suddenly made out of solid lead. But see, a heart change is necessary to lead to changed actions. And it takes time. It takes humility, because otherwise, if, we're, if it's just about putting the right rules in place, well, then just like the expert in the law, we, we, we can find loopholes around things. We see this in the court systems. We see this in our society. We see it within the Bible. Is that We are really good at rationalizing our behavior, of like explaining why I'm not actually breaking this rule. And I heard a pastor once say that when we rationalize, we are believing rational lies. We're really good at talking ourselves into like, no, no, it's, it's like when there's no heart change, we're really good at creating loopholes to get around the laws that are, the rules that are in place. But when there's a heart change, man, it doesn't matter what's on the books. People is all that matters. Making people feel worth, worthy and, and valuable and loved. And I'll go to any lengths to make them feel loved and valuable. And so just for the last part of this message, I just want to talk just for a little bit. Like, what does this actually mean during this time in the time of corona? What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? And I've just written down just a few things that I think might be useful First thing I think, loving means listening. Like in our age of sound bites and social media, like we're so used to talking at each other that we have lost the ability to talk to each other. We talked about this a little bit in the series we did earlier in the summer. Not allowing our love to go cold means being willing to do the hard business of actually sitting down and having a real conversation. Like, having a talk, listening to, uh, you know, another person's understanding of something or their view of something. In fact, I was watching this video on YouTube not too long ago where it was this, uh, like, psychology professor, and he was debating this, like, atheist, like, philosopher-type guy. And one thing that I love that they did in the debate format of this conversation that they're having, like, they're arguing about, like, big worldview stuff. It's a really interesting conversation. But one of the things they did was at the beginning of like the second day of the debate is the first thing they had to do was you had to summarize the viewpoint of the other person. It wasn't enough for you to say, this is my view and I'm going to keep doubling down on it. It says, no, you have to summarize the points the other person made the previous day to sum up what they believe. And the other person gets to critique it. Meaning like, no, 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 you misunderstood. Like this one part right here, this is what I actually meant when I said that. And you see them both like lights turning on of like, okay, I understand that. Like clearly they're not, they don't agree with each other, but at least they understood each other because they were actually taking the time to listen to one another. In his book, Caring Enough to Be Heard, or To Hear and to Be Heard, author David Augsburger wrote this. He says, Being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. And that's the way it is, like being heard, to feel like this person genuinely cared what I had to say, even if they may not necessarily agree, even if though they may differ a little bit, like they cared enough to actually listen. And I mean, I love that point of being able to like summarize, like, okay, so let me understand, this is what you're saying, and allowing them to define their own opinion rather than me just assuming I know what they mean can be very, very powerful. 
So for many people in our lives, just being willing to listen is enough to make that person feel loved. That we need to push beyond the small talk and push for those deeper questions to make people feel loved and cherished in this time. So that's the first one. Loving means listening. Now the second one is similar to it, and I think it's like the next step when you move beyond it, is loving means listening, but I think loving also means understanding. Like I said back in the spring, unless we can view, you know, especially in this time of just election season and lots of different views and lots of arguments and just all kinds of stuff, and unless we can view someone else's viewpoint with empathy, and by empathy I mean like you're able to put yourself in their shoes and like, okay, let me try to at least understand, may never agree, but at least understand why they view things the way that they do how absolutely insightful that can be to ask questions, to not assume, let them explain themselves, to kind of create their own categories. Man, that can lead to a powerful conversation and a connection between two people. Now, so that's the second one. Loving means understanding. Next one is loving means serving. See, like the Samaritan, we need to be paying attention to the opportunities around us because, I mean, we see, like, the priest and the Levite, they just pass right on by. Which, if I could guess for, like, our culture and time, the excuse would usually be, I don't have time. Yeah, this person needs help, but, man, I've got, I got to be at this place in two minutes, or I got to be here in ten minutes, or, like, I left with just enough time to get there um, before the thing started. Like, we don't have time. We don't have cushion margin in our lives to be able to be like, this person, they have a flat tire on the side of the road. This is more important than seeing the previews of this movie. Maybe I should stop and see if I could potentially help them. And see, people like that, and like this is the thing that I'm thinking about. Like right now, because of social media, because of the news, because of everything that's going on, like we're so aware and like hyper vigilant and hyper like focused on many things which are going on like opposite side of the country. And I'm thinking like, man, we even like to love your neighbor means in many ways to think local. Like, I need to think about what are the issues and problems in Effingham or in Newton or in Shelbyville or Neoga or whatever town you live in. Like, because the truth is there are people like the man half dead on the side of the road. There are people who are half dead, maybe not physically, but half dead emotionally, spiritually, mentally that this time period has just taken a toll on them, and they're half dead, and you pass by them every day. Maybe you work with them. Maybe you live next door to them. Maybe it's, maybe it's your spouse that this time period of figuring out what to do with school and lots of decisions and tough decisions and uncertainty, and that person's half dead, and maybe the neighbor you're supposed to love is your wife or your husband or it's one of your kids that they're struggling with all of this fear and uncertainty. And so rather than worrying about what's happening on the West Coast, we need to worry about what's happening on the West Side of town because there are needs here too. And I can actually do something about the needs here. I can actually love my neighbor who actually is physically my neighbor. How can I help? And then finally, love means serving, but love also means entering their world. 
I actually uh, was talking to, uh, we had a, our uh, small groups, uh, student and adult small groups had like a all-together conference thing a couple weeks ago of a Sunday night and got together and just had some good discussions on shepherding and things like that, especially in a time when people can't always gather together. Like, how do we still shepherd people in the midst of that? And I was talking with a leader uh, during kind of like in between like a break type of thing. And something they had brought up of like, man, what can be hard sometime in a group context is knowing like, when do I, like, I, they're like, they said, like, I have a fear of being judgmental. Like, I don't want to come across as judging. Like, if I want to speak into someone's life or I see something that's concerning, like, I want to speak into their life. But at the same time, I don't want to come across as, like, I'm just, like, judging everybody who has the smallest problem going on. And so he was saying, like, I don't know quite how to, like, navigate that, like, knowing when to speak truth and, like, when not to, like, when to just be present and to love. And one of the things that I had said, I was like, something that I feel like has been a, a metric for me, and this comes out of Matthew 23, where Jesus, he's talking about the Pharisees, and one of his critiques of the Pharisees is he says, you tie heavy loads on men's back, and then you're unwilling to even lift a finger to help them. And so one of the things that this is a metric to use to know whether to, like, enter in and to speak into somebody's life is, Am I willing to walk with this person in this thing? Like, if I'm going to point out this thing in their life, this thing that they have to deal with, like, am I willing to walk with this person? Because if, if I'm not, if I just want to point out how wrong they are and then go about my merry way, it's not that the person maybe doesn't need to hear that, but maybe they don't need to hear it from me. Because it, my motivation for approaching them might be self-righteousness. It might not be genuine love. That, I mean, essentially, there needs to be skin in the game when it comes to loving your neighbor. Like, if I'm not willing to enter that person's world and saying, like, hey, like, I know you're struggling in your marriage. How can I, like, me and my wife, we can meet with you. Or, like, you're having problems with parenting. Like, hey, like, we have that same problem with our kids. Like, how can we come alongside you? And, like, we'll share all of our war stories, all of the things we did wrong so that you can learn from them. Like, I'm willing to enter into your world in order to love you. That you can't, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to love someone from a distance. It requires, like, the Samaritan who he put the guy on his donkey he went, who knows where he was going or what he was doing, takes him to an inn, pays for his stay, and says, hey, I'll be back, and if he racks up any other charges, I'll take care of it. That's love. Skin in the game. And see, that's the way Jesus was as well. Jesus didn't say from heaven, you guys need to get your lives together, or you're going to go to hell. He took on flesh, and he entered our world to walk with us and to teach us, to heal us, to set us free, to guide us along the way. See, Jesus was the greatest example. He was the good neighbor. He was, in a sense, the good Samaritan. So to answer the question, to sum up, who do I love? Everyone. Always. No matter who they are, what they've done, how it might or might not benefit me, Jesus showed us through his life and through his death how to love, and now we're called to model that, especially in a time when the love of many is growing cold. Will you stand with me? We're going to sing a song in a moment, and during this song, I want to, want to actually encourage you to just spend some time just praying and reflecting to God, who is my neighbor 
not in, not in a theoretical sense of like who am I supposed to love and who am I not supposed to love to like let yourself off the hook, but like practically ask God, who is my neighbor? Who are those people that I'm supposed to listen to and to understand, to enter the world, to have skin in the game of like, I'm supposed to move toward them in love, that I'm supposed to model the life, the cruciform life of Jesus, who love those who even refuse to love him back. Who is my neighbor? Maybe it's someone in my family. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's someone who lives next door. Maybe it's someone on the other side of town. I don't know who it is. It's going to be different for all of us. But I want, I want you to take this time to ask the Lord, to say, Spirit of God, show me. Show me who my neighbor is and give me tangible ways that I can begin to move toward that person and love them well. And then I'll come back up and close this out.